You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Sojourn Midtown family, how we doing? Woo! Well, thank y'all for the warm welcome, and I could not be more excited to be with y'all. It warms my heart as deep as I can possibly feel to see many of your faces, to think about all the years loving the Lord our God together in the highs and the lows and a bunch of in-betweens. Thank y'all. Thank you for loving me, for loving citizens, for loving the Lord. Our church feels your love and sending and prayers. And it means so, so much to us. And for those of y'all less familiar with me, my journey at Sojourn began in 2013. I was an intern here at Midtown. At the end of my intern year, I got the opportunity to come on staff. Eventually, in 2016, I became an elder. And in that eldership kind of season, the elders of this church, the great elders of this church, kind of discerned and called and said, Justin, we feel like you should plant a church one day. That was something that had been in my heart and I felt that affirmation. And that day came in fall 2018 when we started to gather here in Louisville to pray and worship and move towards planting a church. And what I wanna do with this now is many people have never been part of a church plant, never been to one, never seen it. But I want y'all to kind of see the family album because the church is people. You are the church. We are the redeemed people of God committed to Jesus, committed to one another, and committed to his mission to the world. So let's look at some family pictures. I'll walk you through how the last year's been. So here's one of those worship nights. That's my home in the Highlands. If you see yourself, you can get excited. If you see a friend, you get excited. If you don't know anybody in that picture, man, the mission of God moves quick. There's us in the uh, youth room, little bigger crowd. And this is the group that y'all sent out, 13 adults from the Sojourn family. We were sent out and commissioned in May 2019, and we all moved that summer to Birmingham, Alabama. And the place we moved is a place, uh, one more picture of those elders. This is probably one of the most important pictures outside of my wedding and the birth of my children. This is maybe the happiest day of my life. Maybe the most spiritually important day of my life to feel the love and affirmation of the elders and elders' wives here. And it was a moment where I'd recommend no one plant a church unless they've been sent well and can feel the wind of God's spirit at their back lived out through the real lives of real people. Church planting is important and it is spiritual relational work. And there's no other way around that. And it's a joy. And where we've planted this church in Birmingham, you might think, what are the needs in Birmingham, man? That sounds like the the heart of the deep south. But here's the deal. When we planted this with a crew of about 20 people, 13 of us met about seven down there to start to gather and pray and disciple one another, we planted the church on the east side of Birmingham. And this east side has over 100,000 people in it. And there has not been a successful church plant in 30 years. It's a graveyard. It's a forgotten and somewhat undesirable area to many people unless God has given you eyes to see. 
that the beautiful landscape is covered with an even more beautiful people from all different economic, racial, and generational backgrounds and it is ripe to see the gospel do a new thing. So the mission of Citizens Church is that we're trusting God and working towards cultivating a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham. So let's look at some pictures. We threw our first gathering. The house is too small. People are out in the, in the hallways there, but we had a great time. Then we started to gather. And what we did is we preached the word of God everywhere we went. We discipled the word of God in small groups of twos to three. We lived out community in groups of eight to 10. And then we started meeting each Sunday privately in my home. And it was packed in. That's a pre-COVID picture. Can you tell? <laughs> we got going wall to wall. It's from the porch. And this was our launch in March of this year, March 1st, we had about 120 plus adults come and join us in the basement. The Ramirez were there. Thank you, Jerry and Rebecca. Uh, and it was packed, it was fun, and no one even had thought about any virus. We would meet one more time on March 8th and I would say, hey guys, let's cut up that communion in the back. It's a little more sanitary, put it in little cups. And people laughed at me. They're like, Justin, you read the news too much. A week later, we wouldn't meet. So we went from having this, we've been working towards this big opening and we pushed it all online. And people said, man, this is the worst time ever to plant a church. I can't believe this. this could, what, what, what could be worse? And to be honest, on the other side of the quarantine and things, kind of nothing changed for citizens. Sunday was only maybe 20% of our energy. And yeah, it wasn't fun preaching into an iPhone for 13 weeks in a row. But to be honest, all the discipleship, all the groups, whether it had to go online or different things, the work of the church not only went on, but began to thrive. See, in that picture, there's a crowd of 120 adults, but we had 36 adult members. Today, we actually have 60 adult members. We've grown faster during COVID than in the previous segments of time. And it looked a lot like this. We slowed down and went fishing. There's my youngest, Tyler, taking a nap. He can't hang. He can't hang out on the pond. There's Eloise, my five-year-old, peeking through. That's my beautiful wife, Elena. There's my little kids with the same smile, hanging out in the uh, garden there in Birmingham. And this is what our gatherings look like. A lot of spreading out on lawns and leafy places. It's hot as can be in Alabama. And now as restrictions have loosened in Alabama, this is what a typical gathering looks like. Over a meal, working together, that's a new to citizens night where all the new people come, learn about church, get their questions answered, meet me and other leaders. And this is what our gatherings look like spread out now. We got mask on, hand sanitizer at the door, staying six feet apart, but it's a simple setup for a simple church and the power of God flowing. And last week, we celebrated our very first baptisms. We bowed, yes. Hey, you know you follow Jesus when you're excited about baptisms, amen? That is something to give glory when adults say, I follow Jesus, I don't follow my own life anymore. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And last, this is first day of school. Life kind of went back to normal. This is my two kids and some other citizens' children heading off to their first day of class. 
And while that's a great story, everything I told you just now is true, right, and good, is a story of God's grace unfolding. But the story I struggle to tell because I don't have pictures for, it's tough to capture, as the past year's been extremely difficult. People struggled tremendously with job changes, trying to just move and make it work in a new city. Our core team struggled tremendously with bad, um, bad housing situations, landlord problems, flooded basements, leaky roofs, trying to find houses to buy, trying to find things to work out, job problems, chauvinistic boss problems, discrimination problems. Our city too was boiling with the anger and the tears over racial injustice and police brutality. The neighborhoods we live in were often stricken with violence and continue to do so. We've had to learn to be okay with the things that are not right in the world, including in our streets, and that's why we're here, because we love Jesus and we love our neighbors. There's not a single member of our congregation that would say this year went swimmingly. But I said early on, and I have said about a thousand times, that we had to start viewing our problems as not obstacles. That our problems were not obstacles in planting Citizens Church. Instead, our problems were the pathway to planting Citizens Church. Can I get an amen, church? Your problems aren't something for Jesus to fix, but a pathway to put before God and say, Lord, you are with me in this. We're gonna work through this, and I'm gonna come to know the goodness of God in the midst of whatever this is. And we learned we're not planting Citizens Church as some science project. We're being planted in the soil of Birmingham, as citizens of heaven, to put our roots down. And that is the planting of a church. When you begin to love a people, love one another, serve one another, so deep that nothing can move you. And that's our story, church. I wanna give you three ways you can pray for me. Please write these down. I covet every single second that you ain't praying for Sojourn Midtown, pray for me, okay? Pray for citizens, all right? Number one, that our church would continue to reach out and serve our neighbors well during the COVID-19 crisis. That we would take it seriously that the eight houses or eight apartments around us, man, the Lord put me here to serve, to reach out, to cook meals, to do whatever safely I can do to make sure these people know they're not alone in the world. Instead, I love them and it shows them that God loves them. I started a book study, a secular book study in my neighborhood. We had the first meeting. We're reading To Kill a Mockingbird. In the first 10 minutes, a lady I have never met who knew no one in the group just freely admitted, since COVID-19 came, I've lost my identity and purpose. I don't know if I wanna live anymore, but I'm here tonight because I feel like maybe a friend will help. I'm telling you, church, just like I tell citizens, people are hungry, people are aware, People know that the glory of God is what they need, even if they don't know what to call it. So seek out your neighbors. Number two, our church to have a deep commitment of discipleship as new waves of members and visitors come. Please pray that we would continue our heart for discipleship and just a fervent love of God's word, even as more and more people come. It's easy to lose track of what you're doing when things are going great. 
but we wanna be the opposite. We wanna follow Jesus as we grow and teach others to follow Jesus as we continue to grow. So pray for us to grow healthily. Number three, we need a new meeting space. Because of COVID-19 restrictions and spreading out, and that's not going anywhere anytime soon, we are in a need, in a bind. We're not at max capacity, but we're close for COVID-19. We need a new lease, we need a new building, and we need the Lord to supply that space or that renovation or whatever it is. So pray for the space and the finances that we can accomplish that aim. Amen, do I have your prayers? Because you have my thanks. Thank you for loving citizens, investing in citizens, and being a part of this work. We love you. Let me pray for us now, and we're going to jump right into Matthew 20. We have an incredible text today, and I can't wait to celebrate Jesus with you. Lord, Father God, I thank you so much for Sojourn Midtown. I cannot express how much the six years I was here meant to my personal development. My family went from no kids to two kids. This was a time of great formation for us, and I'm so thankful for the relationships, for the people. And I'm thankful for the new people here at Sojourn Midtown that will care about missionaries and church planning and care about their neighbors and care about the city. Lord, you see, the gospel comes to us in order to go through us. I pray that more and more and more for Sojourn Midtown. Thank you for what you've done and do it again, Lord. Do it in our hearts. Continue to work in us, God. Christ, I pray, amen. Church, now for the text today. Anybody have a mama growing up who was like really, really, really proud of them? Like pictures all over their desk at work, telling everybody there's Jesus and then you, and just talking about you like you ain't ever sinned and everything's great. Anybody have a really proud mama? I see that hand. I see that hand. Okay, we had great self-esteem growing up. Sorry, y'all. All right. Having a proud mama is a good thing. And us three had great self-esteem. Um, and today we get a weird story. There's two men who are Jesus's disciples who want greatness, yet they seek Jesus wrongly. And then there's two men in great need who seek Jesus rightly. And we have this gracious, gracious Jesus standing among us teaching us that he's the only great one and he's the only place where our needs can be really met. Look with me at verse 18. We learn from the text, this is Jesus' third prediction of his death, that not only Jesus will die, but look at verse 18. It's real specific. It says, Jesus, I will be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and I will be raised on the third day. For a third time, he's telling his followers clearly that this is not gonna end well. You've been following me. They've been trying to arrest me. They've been trying to stone me. But eventually, I'm going to be crucified. And to us, that seems like a word we're not familiar with, but to them, they would know this is the torturous death for the worst of worst criminals in the Roman Empire. The iron pegs would be nailed through a person's hands, hung on a wooden cross, brought upright so that Jesus or criminals would hang on the iron pegs and have to slowly suffocate as they could no longer pick their body up to breathe. 
to hear this, his followers, his friends, they should be terrified to say the worst of worst deaths is at the door. But they also should be mystified because he says, in three days, I'm going to rise. And I don't think they knew what that meant exactly. But instead of being terrified or mystified or asking questions, instead we have verse 20 here. It says right after that, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. So this isn't just proud mama finding Jesus. The sons are like a foot and a half behind mama. And kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in the kingdom. Mom wants the best for her boys. Any proud mama wants the best. The right and left hand in the kingdom would be number one and number two after Jesus in heaven. Who wouldn't want that for your sons? But the problem here is the sons are standing right there. And they should say like, mom, mom, you're embarrassing me in front of Jesus. This is serious, man. We've been following him for years. We've been walking around Israel. Like, come on, he's doing miracles. He's not, he's not about this. But what we learn from other gospel accounts, it's not just a proud mom here. It's probably James and John, the sons of Je Zebedee, are putting their mom up to this. In other accounts, it's the two disciples making this request directly. Imagine the pettiness of the disciples, James and John here, that Jesus is predicting his own gruesome death, saying something like, I'm going to be burned alive and beaten in front of a crowd. And here they are jockeying for seats in the kingdom like it's Churchill Downs. Look at verse 22, how our gracious Jesus replies and takes us as a moment to re-educate them. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. You don't know what you're talking about. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand or, and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to, the, to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the son of man came to be served and not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lays down some truth here. When you're in the mode of predicting your own death, you don't mince words. And he tells them, A, you don't know what you're talking about. B, this is the Father's to grant, Father God to grant, not me. And here's three things you actually should be concerned about. Here are the three things that make a good leader in the kingdom of God. And number one is this, church. You must accept and endure 
suffering for the kingdom of God. Everyone who follows Jesus will suffer. That's what's meant by the cup. That cup of suffering is coming. If you follow Jesus in a fallen world, bad things are coming. Life is hard, so endure with faith. Number two is this. Use your power, this is that part about the Gentiles, use your power to serve others, not yourself. We don't like to think of ourselves as having power, but power is the ability of one person to make someone else do something. So your social standing, your wealth, your relationships, your history, your status, these are all parts of your personal power. And Jesus is saying, don't be like worldly people who use their power to make others do things for them, rather Jesus's people use their power to do good for others. Power for someone else's good is the path of becoming a servant. Power used only for your good is the path of becoming a tyrant. He says, it's not gonna be that way among my followers. You've had a lot of bad models in this world, but we're laying down a new one of what greatness looks like today. Number three, this is how to be a great leader in Jesus' kingdom. It's building on these, endure the suffering, serve others, and then serve, number three, even up and past the point of self-sacrifice. It's not just enough to do nice things for others or to serve others. Jesus is saying, follow my example to put yourself last, to put yourself at risk for another's Good And our culture hates this idea. Our culture doesn't want to show weakness at all, doesn't want to show need at all. And Jesus is saying, put yourself in vulnerable places for the good of the kingdom and the good of the people. Serve like me. Jesus has every right to come as a king and be served hand and foot, yet he will take the iron stakes in his hands and feet for us. Suffering is the pain we don't ask for, and it comes for us anyway. Sacrifice is the pain that we willingly take with courage and faith in Jesus Christ. There are, obeying Jesus in a falling world is risky business. Obeying Jesus at work will be risky business. Sharing your faith will be risky business. Serving people, putting yourself last will be risky business. And we are called to that by faith. Here's the truth, church. Our culture would laugh at these values, but when you use your power to serve and be sacrificial, it's perfectly logical if you're living for another world and another king. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. And he gives us this vision of what following him should look like, really summarizing the past like 10 chapters of Matthew all together to suffer and to serve well because he wants them to stop worrying about greatness or jockeying for position among one another. This vision of the Christian life of worry about your suffering and serving of the king is the opposite of worrying about your personal glory. And this is the pivot point in the passage where things change because in Christ's kingdom, he's the only great one. There's only one great person in the kingdom of God. It's the king. And if we are worried about our greatness, we are worried about the wrong thing, church. 
Can you hear me, y'all? If you're worried about your greatness, you're worried about the wrong thing. If you're worried about sojourn or citizen's greatness, we're worried about the wrong thing. We follow the great one. And look at what Matthew does. He pairs a story about two disciples who can't see Jesus' greatness with the story of two blind men who see it quite clearly. Look with me at verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, yes, that Jericho, that Jericho where God's people learned that following Jesus might look like foolishness to the world as they marched around the city seven times before the walls fell down hundreds of years earlier. They're at that Jericho and a great crowd followed Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Men, decades sitting by the roadside, decades, in a culture that said they had no use for the weak, no use for the disabled. Imagine sitting day after day outside a city that you've heard about God's faithfulness over and over, but your life is sitting in the dirt again on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday every year of your adult life. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them. The crowd said, no. The crowd said, we keep you at the roadside quiet, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, please have mercy on us, son of David. Imagine the scene. They're preparing for Passover. It's hot. It's dusty. It's the springtime. And they're sitting in the sun. Jesus has had a public ministry for three years. These two men have probably been hearing rumors that God has come to visit his people for three straight years. They can't go looking for him. They have to literally wait in place all of their days, counting the days that maybe Jesus will pass by me. Maybe Jesus will come to Jericho. Maybe one day I'll get to meet this guy that everyone's whispering about, wondering, is he or isn't he? Is he the Messiah? And one day it comes to pass. And these men are absolutely determined to see Jesus. And they go after Jesus like he's the only hope in the world. Like Jesus is the only great one who's ever going to matter. Who wouldn't want to serve this Jesus? Look at verse 32. This is what Jesus does. Jesus, the opposite of the crowd, the crowd that thought they were too important and Jesus was too important for these blind men. Jesus stops and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Imagine the scene where everyone's telling them to be quiet. Everyone's literally holding them back to not get to Jesus. And Jesus is calling to them. Maybe he calls them by name. But imagine the moment that your whole life is auditory in touch and you're being pushed back and told to be quiet. And suddenly God himself speaks to you and says, come here. And suddenly no one else's voice matters. And the crowd makes a way like the Red Sea right to the Savior of God. They said to him, Lord, 
let our eyes be opened. And notice what he doesn't say. They don't say, Lord, I've been blind my whole life. Will you please do this one thing? I'm so tired of being a beggar. I'm so tired of being blind. I'm so tired of being rejected by my family. I'm so tired of sitting at the roads. I'm so tired of being run over my culture. Instead, Jesus stops for them, looks at them, asks them what they want. And they're about a hand reach away because Jesus touches them in the next line. And they don't ask, heal all my blindness. They say, open my eyes now, Lord. They want to see Jesus. They want to behold the beauty of the Savior, the one who can do all things, the one who matters, the one who's great. And of course, Jesus, the one, if you see your need and run to him, he always heals. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And see the irony the disciples earlier who'd walked with Jesus for years are worried about their personal greatness. But the blind men see there's only one great person. And you come to this great person in your need. If you want to be near Jesus, you come to him in your need. The disciples want greatness because they're blind to the beauty of Jesus. Jesus is the only great one, church, and greatness is from nearness to Jesus. And church, you're only gonna be near Jesus through your neediness. Your needs are not a problem to Jesus. They're the path forward. Your sin, your shame, your inadequacy, your struggles are not a big problem to our Lord. They're the pathway of seeking the Savior of drawing close to him. Let your neediness, church, bring you all the way up to Jesus who calls you by name and says, what do you want me to do? And touches you on the face. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus wasn't a handsome man, but you know to those blind men, he was the most beautiful sight in all of the world to see a man who loves them perfectly, completely, knows their whole story, in a culture that said, could you just sit by the roadside and be quiet? Jesus is calling them to him and asking them questions because he loves them. If you want to be near Jesus, then come with your great need, church. If you want to waste your life, then go get busy for Jesus without being with Jesus. You hear me, church? If you want to waste your Christian life and make sure it counts for nothing, go get busy doing things for Jesus instead of being with Jesus. That's what nearness looks like, church, to come to Jesus over and over with your needs, with your need and dependency on him and saying, Jesus, you're the only thing that matters. We are called to serve. We are called to sacrifice secondarily. You're first called to bring your enormous needs to Jesus. The mission is lost whenever we believe someone else needs Jesus more than me. You hear me, church? The mission is lost whenever we believe someone needs Jesus more than me. Why? Because that mission becomes all about self-righteousness instead about our universal great and deep need for Christ. You want to entrance your neighbors with the gospel? Take your needs to the Savior over and over. You'll find a compassionate, loving heart growing in you. 
that doesn't see everyone else's needs as a problem, but an opportunity to point them to a savior as you seek him too. Our service is not about becoming great. It's about following the greatness of Jesus. Because our nearness to Jesus comes through our neediness, one day, both now and in the throne room, those who are most in touch with their need with Jesus will be closest. You meet someone with a great prayer life, it's someone who knows what dependency is. You meet someone who just seems to know the Lord, it's because they know their need and they run to Jesus like the blind men. Church, let's be the blind men. Let's see our great need and see a gracious Jesus who stops for us, touches our face, and confirms his love and heals our soul. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant between God and men for the forgiveness of sins. So we take this bread, remembering Jesus's body was broken to bring us home, church. And we take this wine, remembering Jesus's blood was shed and sacrificed for us. We take these elements as often as we gather, both remembering that his, his terrible prediction came true, both the death and the resurrection, and that one day Jesus will return soon. This meal is only for believers, those who've confessed their sin and repent, trusting Jesus Christ, who've run to Jesus. If that's not you yet, I just ask that you stay seated, that you refuse to take the cup and the bread under you, and think about the sermon, the liturgy, the songs, and we can prepare even next week to follow the Lord and take communion. You'll find the communion cup under your seat. There's both wine and bread. You may take it as I pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.